it's a blessing for us to be with you all today. It's a blessing anytime we get to have fellowship or get to be with you all. You're very special. And anybody that just came down I-95 and is able to sit here tonight, I'm impressed. <laughs> that was not a favorite road of mine. Uh, we found a way going to Nova Scotia that we could go farther west and go up 81 and uh, cut over that way to avoid as much of I-95 as possible. I am not a city person, whether you're driving through it or living in it or visiting. That's not my place to be. God did not create us for that kind of living. Uh, but it is a blessing for us to be with you all today. The last song that we sang, I don't think could have been a more perfect song as far as tying together from this morning's message and what this evening's message is going to be. When we think of the Christmas season, whether as Christians or in our culture, there's three terms that we often hear with Christmas, and they're on a lot of Christmas cards. We have neighbors at the entrance into our neighborhood that definitely are not saved people, and they made three big cardboard candles that they stuck out front and had three words on it, love, joy, peace. And tonight we're going to be looking at the matter of the peace of God. We're going to be looking in Philippians, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. But as we sang this song, I hope you were paying attention as we were singing the words of this song. Stayed upon Jehovah. We have to be planted. We have to be standing in the right place. But the matter of trust that we were talking about coming through here so much this evening as well. The peace is provided for us. It's a matter of whether we avail ourselves to it. Now, the book of Philippians is like a number of the other books in the New Testament, what we call the epistles. It's a letter. Now, for you younger ones, you may not really know what a letter is. It's something we used to handwrite. Uh, we were talking with the Welches this afternoon, and uh, Amber was talking about asking her mom, before cell phones, how did you know what time it was? How did you know what day it was? We have a calendar still on our refrigerator. I still wear a watch. It's interesting. I've had some people ask, do you still wear a watch? I do still wear a watch. Uh, I don't want to carry a phone with me everywhere, to be honest with you, and I don't carry my phone with me everywhere that I go. But we used to, we didn't send emails. We didn't send texts for sure to anybody. And it was a matter of writing a letter. A letter is an interesting thing. It's something that it takes time to sit down you have to put your thoughts together in writing a letter. And it really shows the uh, application. There's something of yourself given even far beyond, even if it's a typed letter, a handwritten letter, there's something far beyond. Back in the olden days, uh, before Jennifer and I were even, uh, I don't think we had even, no, we hadn't had our first date yet. She'd gone to Nova Scotia on a summer team and had sent a letter to me, we, we were friends, we were communicating as friends, but she grew up on a farm in northeast Ohio, and Ohio was one state I had never been to, and I made a comment about never having been there, well, she needed somebody to help move her things from Clemson to Ohio at the end of the summer, and wanted to know if I would be interested or willing to help her do that, and I wrote back and told her I would be glad that I'd like to do that, and then several weeks after that, was talking to one of the guys that was on the team in Nova Scotia. Uh, and when finished, he said, well, Jennifer's in here. Would you like to talk to her? 
I said, sure. And I said something about looking forward. She was very polite to me on the phone. I found out later that when she got off, she wasn't sure where I was coming from, that I never even acknowledged her letter. And now that was July. Then December, we were at a meeting, and I was at that meeting too for the campus ministry she was with. And one of the guys that stayed on in Nova Scotia said, I want you to come to my room. And he handed me this envelope, and he said, I'll let you decide if Jennifer should get it or not. I had mailed this letter in late June, early July. It arrived in Nova Scotia in October. Uh, so she, it was the letter telling her that I would be glad and interested in doing that. Uh, so in sending letters, not only does it take us the time of writing them, but it's not immediate like that of getting there too. It also means there has to be patience on the part of the one sending as well as the one on receiving that letter. So as we read the epistles, one of the things that's important for us to remember, each one of these is actually a letter in its entirety. We break them down into chapters and portions for things that we're studying or things that we're talking about. But within context, it is a letter that was written by somebody with a specific purpose to somebody else through inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we're reading these. Philippians is a book, that, a letter, that when we read it, several of the topics that pop up through and through it are thanksgiving, rejoicing, and peace. Yet it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned. Not the best of circumstances to be in. And this evening I want us to look at the matter of the peace of God which passeth all understanding. It's something that is promised to every one of us as God's children. It's something that the world is definitely lacking. And really it's one of those aspects that ought to be part of our life on a daily basis. But if it is a part of our life on a daily basis, it's something that the Holy Spirit is going to be able to use as a light shining with those around us. Not lifestyle evangelism, but there's going to be a testimony through the peace that passes all understanding that others that are going through turmoil, the Holy Spirit's able to use that to do the pricking of their hearts and the preparation of their hearts for the receiving of the gospel. And this evening in Philippians chapter 3, I want to begin with verse 20, and we're going to read down through verse 7 of chapter 4. If you would please stand, if you're able to, and follow along with me. Sleeping babies don't require standing if you don't want to. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like into his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord alway, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, 
which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for the privilege of being able to be back here together tonight. We thank you again for the safety that you've provided for those that have been traveling today to be able to get back. We know that they're weary and pray that you would help them to uh, be able to get the rest that they need in preparation for the week that lies ahead. We pray for those that are unable to be here due to health matters, that you would uh, protect them. Father, we pray for your healing upon their bodies. Father, we pray now as we come to this portion of the service tonight that we would be diligent to just uh, set aside every thought and distraction from our hearts and our minds to allow thy spirit to bring thy word to do the work in our hearts that we need. Father, we thank you that we can know the peace of God which passeth all understanding. And Father, I pray as we hear this exhortation tonight that it would be used to strengthen us and to encourage us in our walk, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we thank and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Before we even start, I want you to understand the peace of God. It is a specific peace that we're talking about here tonight. But as we look at the beginning of this portion, uh, again, we're jumping into the middle of a letter that was written. Uh, but he said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is literally citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when we went to Canada, we were considered landed immigrants. So we were permanent residents. We had gone through all the legal channels and paperwork and expenses to be legal immigrants in Canada. And a number of people asked, well, why don't you get your Canadian citizenship? It wasn't because we didn't love the Canadians that we didn't get our Canadian citizenship. Sometimes we like to fudge on words even as Christians, don't we? To our own convenience. And it's something we need to watch out and be careful for. I know men that said they weren't going to take Social Security because there was a ministry exclusion until they hit their 40s or early 50s and all of a sudden wait a minute, what am I going to do when I'm no longer drawing support? And all of a sudden, in order to do that, you had to have a conviction. Now, Social Security is not a good investment, I'll tell you that right now. After over 50 years of paying into it, I can assure you I'm not going to live long enough to get back uh, what I paid into it in over 50 years. But I couldn't say that it was a conviction of my heart that it was wrong to be paying into Social Security. But then when all of a sudden a convenience arrives, we change our mind. Well, it's not really a conviction. And I'm going to pay to buy back my past to get into it. Something's not quite right there. Well, the same thing going to Canada. When we started looking at the matter of dual citizenship, there was a clause in there that we had to be willing to forsake. If called upon, we had to be willing to forsake our U.S. citizenship. If called upon, if there was a conflict that took place, and we had dual citizenship, I was born a U.S. citizen. I didn't have a choice or say in that. I would be choosing the Canadian, and in doing so, if I was being honest, I'd be saying, okay, it's going to give me advantages in that I can vote for the ones that are taxing the daylights out of me, instead of just paying the taxes without being able to vote. It's the only advantage, really, that there would have been that I know of but I'd be willing to forsake my U.S. citizenship if called upon. And as I prayed about it, 
I could not say that with a conviction of heart. The bottom line that I came to was God chose for me to be born a U.S. citizen. This is where I felt like it was, that part, the Earth Lady part was planted. And as, you know, with age and changes, we can have come back to the States. Well, this is something that's far beyond our U.S. citizenship that we need to realize. For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to stop and to think about that. If you're here tonight, you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Your citizenship is in heaven. So that ought to automatically bring a joy to our hearts. We ought to remember that, especially as we go through the struggles, especially as we see the events that are taking place uh, internationally and nationally right now. Yes, this is our dual citizenship, essentially. Or we're landed immigrants here, if you want to be more specific. We're landed immigrants like we were in Canada. But ultimately, my age is going to bring me to the point that I'll end up living where my citizenship exists, is in heaven. So the joy that ought to be there. Here, as Paul was writing to these brethren, and this was not an affluent church. They were not wealthy. These were, uh, it was a church that was going through struggles. It was one that there was probably poverty very prevalent. And he was saying, not your citizenship, not my citizenship, our citizenship. All that are born again that know the Lord Jesus Christ, our citizenship, our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul included that in there as a statement of fact. But is it a statement of fact in our lives? Are we truly looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we truly looking for our Savior's return? We talk about it, but is it such a zeal or such a hope, such a joy that we're looking forward to? If you've ever had a family member that was gone for a long period of time for whatever reason, and they were going to be coming home, the excitement that's taking place or them coming home. When Benjamin, Alyssa, and Caleb were moving back uh, from Okinawa, coming back to the States and he was getting out of the Marine Corps, there was an excitement for mom and dad and grandpa and grandma as we were looking forward to them coming back and enthusiasm, we could hardly wait to see them. Do we truly have that enthusiasm, that excitement, looking forward to the day that our Lord is going to return? And notice the promise that comes with this as he returns. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There's a precious truth in John and 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> addresses this a little bit more. I'm going to turn to it rather than try to quote it and get tongue-tied. First John chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, he said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is a blessed hope that's lying before us. And that's what Paul was saying here, that these vile bodies of ours are going to be changed like unto his glorious body. Everybody's going to be bold. Everybody's going to, uh, you know, speak English. Uh, 
one of the little boys at Calvary came up to me one night, and he's he's honest on things. I will put it that way. And he looked at me and said, you're bald. I said, I know it. And you know what? If you're fortunate one day, you'll be bald too. No, I'm not. And I said, but Kevin, God only allows very special heads to become bald that are worthy of being seen. Uh, so uh, we're going to be fashioned like him. We may talk about you know this or that. We don't know. It's going to be a glorious body one day when we're going to be with him. Now that ought to give us joy, especially the older we get and the more aches that develop, the older we get and the more limitations that occur. Instead of focusing on those things, no, I'm going to have a glorious body one day and I'm going to be fashioned by my Lord. And that brings us to where we're really starting tonight, that word, therefore. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord my dearly beloved. Notice twice in here the term that he used, my dearly beloved, the endearment, the love that he had for the brethren to whom he was writing. So often we're afraid to express our affections toward other people, of our appreciation, even of our love toward brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet there's nothing more encouraging than to know that we're loved by somebody else. To be honest with you, there's nothing more encouraging than to have other people that we do love and that we can love. By God's grace, I can't imagine what it would be like to live not having somebody that I love. Uh, And it's something that we ought to give thanks for. But after talking about these things, Paul turns it now to the brethren to whom he's writing. And in the beginning of this portion that we're looking at, he's having to deal with some issues. And so doing, he's wanting to give that assurance that I love you, uh, that Uh, It is because of love that I am dealing with these things. My brethren, my dearly beloved, and longed for, of desiring to see and desiring to be back with once again. It's concerning as we see how things have changed. People don't know what relationships are anymore uh, in the world. Uh, Relationships are developed online. Relationships are developed through texting. And most of that is... LOL. And I'm still, uh, there's a couple things I'm not sure what I have. I'm trying to be very careful that I use full sentences. I'm still, I, I have to discipline myself on that, but we start abbreviating things so much. And it's not a matter of spending the time. When the letter was written, literally Paul was spending time by writing that letter, wasn't he? Spending time with them. Uh, so, my dearly beloved and longed for, that he's reassuring them not only of his love, but he desires to be with them and the joy that he receives from them my joy and my crown. Uh, this isn't something I'm just trying to butter somebody up before the kill. It's not a matter of, okay, I know that I need to discipline, I need to do this, so I want to butter them up and make them feel good. This is the heart of a man of God that dearly loved the brethren to whom he was writing. And he was expressing, not in uh, a patronizing or a... Uh, any other kind of a way but the genuineness of his heart that I love you and I do long to be with you and say my crown and my joy that very clearly shows how important they were to him he said so stand fast in the Lord my dearly beloved that matter of stand fast uh, it's 
an imperative. It's a command that was given to them. And it's a form of something that you are to keep on doing. It's written in a way that is if it's something that you're already doing it and you're to keep on doing it on uh, in perpetuity, never stopping to do it. And it's literally uh, to persevere, to persist, to not give in. Obviously, they were having some conflicts with themselves and there were probably other things that were going on. But it reminds us how we need to encourage one another to stand fast. We may not know what's going on in somebody else's life. But I doubt there's a person in here tonight that doesn't have something going on in your life that is heavy, that's concerning. And to be encouraged by the brethren that are here. But by God's word, stand fast, stand firm. Don't allow yourself to be moved. If you know that you're where you need to be, don't allow yourself to be moved. And if you're working through some situations with somebody else, by God's grace and with the right heart, the matter of stand fast is something that Paul used in a number of his letters. It shows how important of a matter it is. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he said, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. That matter of quit ye like men. How many have used the word quit you recently? It means act manly. Act like a man. Ladies, there are principles there that apply to your life as well. But sadly, we don't have a whole lot of men that act like men anymore. And he's been, it's a command here. Watch. If you're not watching, you're going to get drawn by the feminizing that's going on with this world. That's one of the reasons our president is despised by so many as he stands like a man. That he doesn't give in, wish you wish. I don't agree with everything. I pray for him to get saved, but he does what he believes in. He stands on and he'll fight for it. Watch you stand fast, stand firmly, persevere. Not in your stubbornness. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. In Galatians 5.1, Paul wrote, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In this particular portion of the letter, Paul was writing about the liberty that we have when we are saved from sin, not to do whatever we want to do, saved out of the bondage of sin, to become servants of Christ. And in that, he said, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. Part of the problem for many of us on the uh, national level, political level, social level, whatever you want to call it, is we were born into a free nation and we've lost sight of what freedom, of what liberty is. And we've accepted liberty as an entitlement that I deserve and liberty is by what I define it to be. God teaches us that spiritually we are liberated from the bondage of sin, but we're not left to our own devices. From the bondage of sin to become the servants of God, to become the servants of Christ as His sons. And notice what He said there. Stand fast, persist. Don't allow yourself to be moved. And how do you do that? By not being entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So right there is another warning for us. You can be born again. You can have been set free from the bonds of sin. But you can be entangled again. Not lose your salvation. 
but become entangled again. There was a dear lady in our ministry in Kingston, Ontario, whose family had immigrated from Antigua. She was in her 70s, I think, when we met her. She wrote a book on her family heritage. Her grandparents were liberated, emancipated slaves in Antigua, and she had written a book on her family heritage and the history of what had taken place. Her grandparents worked hard, and uh, they were essentially plantation owners, were not wealthy, but they had their own land, and they worked, and they existed. But many of the emancipated slaves essentially continued in the bondage of slavery. They had never been taught. They had never been trained in how to do things, how to think. And when they had the freedom, they didn't know what to do with it, which was really wrong on the part of Great Britain of not having equipped and helped and prepared them for that point. And even though they were liberated from a political perspective, they were still entangled with the bondage of the life of a slave that they had lived before. That same application happens to Christians as well. We can be saved, but we can allow ourselves to still be entangled with the bondage from that old slavery that we were in by not totally shaking it off and standing fast in the liberty that God has given to us. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul wrote, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, that word traditions here doesn't mean colored lights versus white lights on the Christmas tree. That tradition doesn't mean scalloped oysters for Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. That's not what tradition is meaning here. It literally means the teaching, the instruction that you have received, that you have been taught, whether by word when he was present with them preaching or by epistle, by the letters that he had written to them. And the instruction was to stand fast and to hold on to those teachings. That's a command that's given to you and to me as well, that we are to stand fast in the word of God that has been given to us, to persist, to not allow ourselves to be moved. Now, the opposite of standing fast is compromise. And I want you to hold your fingers here in Philippians, but turn over to Romans chapter 15. Because as Paul is going to this next section, dealing with some issues Uh, We don't know the specifics of the offense, but some issues between brethren to try to get them to resolve things. It's easy to say, well, we'll just compromise. Uh Uh-uh. Now if you're going to honor the Lord and go forward, now if there's going to be victory. And here in Romans chapter 15, begin verse 4, which I read this morning. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis of unity right here that's being talked about, that you might be like-minded one toward another according to to Christ Jesus. That doesn't allow, well, we'll give a little here and you give a little there. No, we come together. What does the Word of God say? And that's where we're going to stand. 
that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. So we're not to give to compromise. We're standing fast, coming down to the point of dealing with these things, but compromise is never something that should even be considered. If it's a compromise, it means I'm compromising that something that God's word clearly says. Now, if somebody wants blue pulpit or blue pews, and somebody wants green, and somebody wants red. Obviously, there's going to have to be compromise. It's not going to be every other row uh, for unity in the church. There are situations like that, but that's not defying a scriptural principle. How you go about deciding which color it's going to be. Now, there are scriptural principles that you'll go by to determine that, but the color is not the the color you choose to compromise on that is not a scriptural matter. We're going back now to Philippians chapter four. Paul went on to write, "I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord." We don't know what the specific offense was at this point that Paul was dealing with, but obviously between these two ladies, something had happened. There was some sort of an offense. Somebody said their banana pudding was better than the other one's nana pudding. Uh, you know, uh, is it pecan or pecan? Uh, that, you know, some sort of offense had taken place. Nobody was willing to let go of it, and Paul was going to deal with it. And he named who it was that needed to be dealt with. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. By naming who he's talking about, it prevents any confusion or excuse. Sometimes when there's an offense or something that's taking place, the appropriate thing is to go to the two individually, quietly. It doesn't have to be a public matter to deal with the specifics and then to address it in a general matter publicly that everybody understands the basis of what's there. Uh, but the two that it was intended for needed to know that this, this is directed to you. No, don't go thinking, well, it has to be Mrs. Welch over there. I know it's not me. It's Mrs. Welch. Mrs. Welch said, no, I know that it's Linda. Absolutely, it has to be Linda that he's talking about. And there's no understanding uh, to be able to start to apply it. Uh, but at this point, he didn't go into the specifics, but you know what? Those two ladies knew what the specifics were. And they knew that Paul knew what the specifics were. Do you know what it means for the rest of us, though? God didn't intend for us to know. How often do we start trying to speculate? And that's true in the Word of God. We'll come to points and we'll speculate, well, this and this and this is what must be happening. I know what the problem was between these two ladies. I'm going to develop a whole message on what that problem was. No. God's perfect will was we didn't need to know. There's a principle we need to know. We didn't know what the specifics were. But we need to learn to be content within the family and within the church. When there's a matter that's being dealt with, I don't have to know what the specifics are. The appropriate people know it, and that's all that matters. And I need to be content with that. I don't need to speculate when I'm talking with somebody else. No, I really think it was this and this. I don't need to, well, I need to research and find out what that is just to make sure it's not in my life. You know, it's just a, no. We need to be content with what God desires for us to know and let everything else go on its own. But as he addressed these two ladies, he did it in a nonpartisan way, addressing both of them equally. And the whole purpose of it was to bring them to a resolution that was having the same mind in the Lord.
And that ought to be our desire with any relationship we have, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And that eliminates a lot of potential for compromise. That matter of the same mind, Paul had already addressed it in this letter, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And really it brings us back to the primary battle that each one of us has, and it's our mind, isn't it? Our thoughts. We start taking a capsule and it's not the jellyfish, it's something else supposed to help your brain be sharper. And I asked him, I said, does it have caffeine in it just to make you feel like you're sharper than what you really are? Um, and our minds, if we're weary, if we're sick, as we get older, there are changes that take place with our mind. But it's something that we need to be very diligent to be guarding, to be protecting, and to make sure that we come to the same mind in the Lord. And then as we finish, uh, that, he said, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. The matter of gratitude on the part of the Apostle Paul for those that had helped him, those that had been laboring with him. And I believe that there's a sorrow on his part that he couldn't come back and be with them, not just so he wouldn't be in prison, but because of his love for them and his desire to be able to express his gratitude. And he's trying to uh, <clears throat> encourage, to make sure that that gratitude and the encouragement comes from those that have labored together with me. With all of that said, we're now coming to the portion of the matter of the peace of God. There's two sets of exhortations that Paul gave right here at the end. The first set of exhortations is verses 4 through 7. The second set of exhortation is 8 through 9. We're going to look at the first one. because Both of them are the matter of coming to that peace in our lives, having the peace of God in our lives. And we're going to look at this first set of exhortations. <clears throat> and Paul gave four exhortations. They're written in the form here of a, an imperative or a command that is given. Do you know what an exhortation is? Regarding, Paul said, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, you probably know what it is to be rebuked, don't you? You know what it is to be reproved, don't you? That word exhortation is literally carries with the picture of come alongside with your arm around to encourage, to instruct, and to help. It shows compassion and love in the matter of instructing. And here we come to the exhortation, a set of exhortation that we may have the peace of God in our lives. The first one we see is that we are to rejoice. The second one that we see is to let your moderation be known. The third one is to be careful or to be anxious for nothing. And the fourth one is literally pray that your request be made known unto God that we are to pray. So we're going to look at these four exhortations that are given to us. <clears throat> now putting it back within context of the portion of this letter that we've looked at tonight, Paul had encouraged the brethren with the fact that our citizenship is in heaven and we're looking forward to the day that we're going to be with our Lord, that we're going to see our Lord. The next aspect that we see is writing, dealing with some conflict that was going on. If everybody is stiff, you know, there's a conflict. You don't, we don't really hear the exhortation, do we? <clears throat> it doesn't sink in because I'm stewing about what I want to be stewing. So seeking to take care of that, and then the giving of thanks uh, to these brethren, 
and now coming to exhort them to leave them as he closes this letter to leave them with something to build them in the faith, a matter of the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. And look at the first exhortation that he gave. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So after all of these other things, really, there is a reason to rejoice. And the word rejoice here literally means be cheerful. To be cheerful. Did you know... Have you ever thought about the fact God commanded you to be cheerful? Well, I'm just a somber spirit. I'm sorry, I'm Eeyore. That's all I can say. No, God has commanded each one of us that we're to be cheerful. That's not giddy. That's not the bouncing up and down like Tigger. It's a matter of a cheerful spirit. Rejoice in the Lord. We have a reason to be cheerful. We are in the Lord. We're born again. The Spirit of God dwells within your heart. There's a reason to be cheerful. But the circumstances rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. There's not a time that we shouldn't be cheerful in the Lord. That word always. See, Brother Robert getting up there. looking at the thermostats and uh, he asked someone if it was a little cool and Jeff and I were talking about it felt good in here this evening. And we were talking a little bit about heritage over Christmas. I was in the eighth grade before we had central heat. And uh, until then, the kitchen and bathroom and mom and dad's bedroom all connected to where there was a propane stove that heated those and the living room. So we would put our clothes on a chair in front of the stove in the kitchen before we would go to bed at night. And in the morning we would jump up and run into the kitchen to get dressed in front of the propane stove with our clothes already warm. I didn't think anything was wrong with that. It wasn't bad. That, that's all I knew. I, it didn't bother me in the least. I'm not sure I would say that I would bounce into it as quickly today. Let's put it that way. I enjoy central heat that when I get up I can turn the thermostat up just by pushing a little button and it heats the whole house and not have to run in to another room in order to do it. Paul was writing to Christians that were in the midst of poverty and trials. And he was exhorting them to rejoice. Through the Holy Spirit, it was written to you and to me today. Regardless of the trials, rejoice in the Lord always. And again... I say, rejoice. We sing a song that goes with that. It's a good song for us to have on our heart, to help to encourage us, to remind us at times. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah didn't have the easiest of lives either. He wasn't the most beloved Israelite either. But notice what he said here in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And he gave the reasons. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
it really draws us back to understanding who I am as a child of God instead of who I want to be in the world in 2020 and 2021. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The next one in verse 5, he said, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Now that term moderation literally means mild-manneredness or fairness. Let your moderation be known unto all men. What is your testimony before all men? He didn't say be known within the church. It's to be known before all men. Are you known within your community, within your neighborhood, within your realm of other people? Are you known to be a man or a woman of moderation, one that is of a mild-manneredness, not one that blows up instantly, not one that's ready to show your righteous indignation, not one that is uh, ready to demand this is what is fair, and it's what I say is what is going to be fair. And as we understand that, it helps us as we're navigating through the days that we're going through today. Oh, such and such a network. Oh, such and such a paper. Our blood can start boiling really easily. There are fa- and there are facts that we see. But how do we handle and respond with those facts? Is it with moderation? Or is it in the flesh? Be made known unto all men. Do you know how that translates into 2021? When we have this demonstration of a testimony of our lives, those that are watching on and saying, well, he's just hot-headed. They know that there's something that's controlling your life. They know that you have a hope that they don't have. That you're not caught up in the futility of the day. That you're not being overwhelmed by the things that are taking on. And you do have a hope, and that's what the world ought to see in your life, not to see in my life, is that we do have a hope. And what is it? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is present with you. The Lord is present with me always. We cannot be removed from that. We can, by our sin, break the fellowship, but we can't remove ourselves from the Lord. The Lord is at hand. The other aspect of that truly is the Lord's return is at hand. And we're looking forward to that day. And as we realize the events that are unfolding, stop and think. According to God's Word, these are things that have to take place if God's Word is true. These are things that have to transpire before the tribulation period takes place. So even as we see these things transpiring, we don't glory in the wickedness We glory in the goodness of our God, knowing that even in these things, we see his time being fulfilled. And then he went on to say, after that, rejoice in the Lord. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The next, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So that matter of be careful for nothing, it literally means not to be anxious about something not to promote your own self-interest in those things that are going on. Don't allow yourselves to become anxious. I haven't mastered that yet. It's something that we have to work on. That's why it's a command that's given to us, because it's something we have to continually work on to not allow ourselves to become anxious, to realize that there are times that we're becoming anxious, 
And when you realize that you're becoming anxious, to acknowledge it, to confess it before God, and then to claim a passage of Scripture to be able to get victory in that matter of anxiousness. You might have to take a deep breath to help you along in that way. But to bring, it's really bringing your mind back into captivity. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That matter of contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There can't be godliness without contentment. Godliness cannot exist if you're not contented anyway. But that's the great gain, godliness with contentment. And that term of godliness is only used 14 times in the scripture, or 15 times it's translated holiness once. But it's in 1 Timothy and in 2 Peter is the only time that matter, that term for godliness is used. But that's something that we're to be striving for to develop in our lives as godliness, that others would see the testimony of Christ in us. And that being careful for nothing, being anxious for nothing, literally is meaning be content in whatsoever state you are in. And that contentment is not an easy one to come to. We say, we joke about it, and I think I may have shared this before, but I was approaching my 30th birthday, and I can still remember giving the testimony in church one night. I had memorized the book of Philippians at that particular time, and uh, some situations with some college students that I had been helping them with some dating issues or concerns. But I can still remember getting up and giving testimony, uh, saying that Paul wrote, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, and that I am content being a single man. That didn't mean I didn't want to get married. I was content being a single man. God allowed me opportunities of ministry that I knew I would not have if I was married. I knew that I was where God wanted me to be at that time. And immediately... After the service, sweet lady, the oldest lady in our church, a short lady, came over to me and arm around me. Now, Lonnie, we prayed and got Jerry Gardner a wife. We're going to get you a wife, too. I wasn't saying that. But that's how we can, sometimes we think of contentment. It's a passiveness of, well, I can't do anything about it, so I guess I'm going to go along with it. Instead of truly the contentment of heart. And it doesn't matter what the situation is, learning to be content then we have the great gain. Be anxious, be careful for nothing. And really the last part which of this verse, which is the fourth exhortation, really tells us how we can be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the exhortation here is, let your request be made known unto God. As we look at this, breaking it down a little bit, Notice it's in everything. There's nothing too small. And we're prone sometimes to think, well, I don't need to pray and ask God for this or for help on this or about this. No, really. And it, as long as we're doing it with the right heart, it really shows our love for God, uh, our dependence upon God that we do. Also, when we stop and thank God for something, well, that was just a little thing. No, to stop and to thank God even some of the little things in our personal lives uh, that we just do and we take for granted so often, to stop and to thank God for that opportunity, thank God for what just transpired in my life. 
Even something like, we thank God for a meal. Thank God, thank you for allowing me to be able to eat the meal, that I don't have physical conditions that I could sit there and look at it and smell it. Or poor Howard can't even smell it tonight. I know Howard's listening, so I'm throwing that in for him. Uh, but he can't even smell it tonight. Uh, but to be able to give God thanks for that. And I can assure you, he will thank God the next time he smells a cup of coffee. That he'll thank God in a different way that he probably hasn't in some time. But in everything, and the means by prayer and supplication. And the term used here for prayer is literally a matter, it means to worship God. It's a matter of thanking God, praising God for who he is. And that's where our prayer life should be, is two aspects. The matter of the thanking and praising and worshiping God and supplication, the request that are made to God, the entreating or the asking. And it means that we're acknowledging God for those needs that we have, but those be made known unto God. And with those four exhortations, notice what Paul has come to now and given us instruction. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That matter, the peace of God, as Paul was, or as Jesus was talking to his disciples there in the garden in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the peace of God that he's talking about right there. And notice as he was given that instruction right before they were about to go into the greatest trial that they couldn't even imagine in their lives. At that time while he was being tried and crucified and the events that were to take place afterward, the command he gave to them with the instruction, first that he was leaving his peace, giving it unto them, but they were to allow it into their lives. He was giving it to them. Notice the command given to them, though. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Two principles we can bring back here now and apply in Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding, that's given to us with those exhortations. The responsibility we have, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So we have to guard our hearts again, don't we, to allow that peace to dwell with our hearts and lives. And how great is that peace? It passes all understanding. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody that is not saved what it is to have peace in your life right now? It's impossible, isn't it? The natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The peace of God that passes all understanding. That you can be going through a trial and you can have a peace while you're going through that trial. You may be enduring physical pain. You may be enduring emotional pain. But there's a peace that's going through. And sometimes you may even stop and wonder, how can I have a peace while I'm dealing with this? It passes all understanding. And we need to guard because when all of a sudden we realize how great that peace is, it's easy for us all of a sudden to be like Peter and to stop looking at the Lord and to say, to fall walking in the, on the water and then to fall into the water. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And passes all understanding, it shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And that term, shall keep, is a term that means to guard or protect by a military guard, either to prevent a hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. 
That's how strong that means that's given to us here. Uh, and it's in the form that I'm not the one that's keeping my heart and mind. It's the peace of God. It's God that's doing the keeping. Uh, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, the channel by which it is done. It's not by listening to the right music. It's not by burning certain incense. It's not by eating the comfort food that helps me the most. It's not by going out and listening to a babbling brook to still my mind. It's through Christ Jesus and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In our lives, I want you to understand this letter was written to you. Yes, it's written. It's a book in the Bible. It's a letter that was written through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it was written to each one of us individually. It was given to us for our encouragement, for our instruction. We've just celebrated a glorious Christmas season. Not just glorious because of the physical things that we can enjoy. More importantly, glorious because of knowing what we're celebrating, the Incarnation. That the very Son of God, that had known all of eternity before time even existed, of the glory of heaven as God the Son, but He became incarnate, and He came to be born as a baby to become man for the purpose of shedding His sinless blood for your sins and my sins, and for the sins of every man and woman that would repent and accept the gift of salvation that He has given and provided to them. And as we have celebrated it, we've watched things going on, and uh, even this afternoon the comment was made, well, by next Christmas we may not even enjoy all of the foods that we enjoyed for this Christmas. But you know, if we don't, we should have the same peace of God which passeth all understanding next Christmas as we do this Christmas. And the challenge that I want to give each one of us tonight as we're ending 2020 and going into 2021 is to purpose our hearts. God's written this letter to me. God's written this letter to each one of you individually. What are you going to do with the exhortation that God has given to you? Are you going to enjoy the gift that God has provided of peace? Or are you going to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, with every piece of news, or not news, every piece of media that comes out. Let's pray.